Hi, and welcome to Scale Ups and Downs, the podcast brought to you by Google for Startups, in which we invite startup founders to share the ups and downs, the hint is in the name, of their journey to scale. I'm your host, Marta Krupinska, head of Google for Startups in the UK. Having co-founded three startups myself and made all sorts of mistakes and survived all sorts of trials and tribulations, I know that the key to success is surrounding yourself with the right people to find solutions together. So for each episode, I'm very lucky to be joined by a panel of experts, founders, investors, industry and field specialists, so that we can jointly discuss the challenges that our guest founders are dealing with. So this week, we'll be speaking about the oh-so-shiny world of fundraising and investing, a world so often critical to business success, so definitely worth digging deeper into. There is a lot of basic content right there on types of investors or where to find them, but what I would really like to dig into today is what constitutes a helpful investor, how to best position your business to strike that perfect partnership that will not only give you cash, but also access to networks and markets. So if you listen on, I'm sure we're going to have a stellar conversation. We have some amazing panelists and ambitious founders who are here to ask and have their questions answered. So for today's episode, I'm joined by two wonderful experts. First is Sasha Astafieva, partner at Atomico, a leading European investor and the authors of my favorite annual report, State of European Tech, that I read religiously. And Sasha leads on new investment opportunities in the consumer space. She's responsible for sourcing, due diligence, and managing partnerships with Atomico's consumer companies. Hey, Sasha, how are you doing? Hi, Marta. Very good. Thank you so much for having me. Now, thank you for joining us. Delighted you're here with us. And along Sasha, we've got Marcus Exar. Marcus is the co-founder of a startup advisory firm up and to the right, which he'll tell us a little bit more about later. But most importantly, he's been an angel investor for very many years. He's been a founder. He sold his first business in digital advertising, but invested in over 20 businesses over the course of his time. Such companies that you've definitely heard of as improbable or Moniz. And he's also been a long-term supporter of an education charity called Hello World. He's one of my favorite people in the world. I'm delighted he's here with us. Hey, Marcus, thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure as always. Wonderful. So we've got a great panel today. We've got two experienced investors, one of them experienced founder. So we'd love to hear a little bit from you both on what keeps you busy currently, but also a little bit of a scale-up story. We're talking about scale-ups and downs. So we'd love an anecdote about a scaling journey that you've participated in that you'd like to share with us. Sasha, do you want to go first? Sure, happy to. So I'm Sasha. I'm a partner at Atomico. I focus on our consumer investments. As you already mentioned, I've spent the last couple of years at Atomico and generally has spent over a decade being an investor or operator in consumer space, both in Europe, in the US, in Brazil. Atomico is a venture fund based here in London. We are currently investing out of our fifth fund, which is an $820 million fund. And I think a story of a scale-up is a company that I was very lucky to partner with earlier in 2021 in March, a Series A round in a company called Zap, which is a quick delivery business operating in London, Netherlands, and France. They're focusing on the convenience sector. It's obviously a sector that's been very competitive, has seen a lot of ups and downs and different players emerging. But what's been fascinating to watch is we backed Zap very early in the journey. The business was only a couple of months old. And in less than 12 months, they've grown significantly. They now operate almost 40 stores across three countries. They have 
thousands of employees, thousands of very happy customers. They just announced their Series B round of about $200 million, which we're very proud of. And I think generally it's been amazing to see how they've executed in such a short period of time. And I think for us, the lesson learned from that scaling journey is that razor focus on your customer is just really, really important. Ability to build an amazing team around you early on is really, really important as well. And I think also being extremely obsessed with quality, especially in the consumer space. Consumers are not always forgiving and being able to focus on them from the beginning, being able to focus on the quality of the operations and the quality of the proposition that you're building is just paramount. So it's been amazing to watch and I couldn't be prouder of the team. Wow, that's quite a story. How old are they? A couple of years and already Series B, 200 million? I know, the world moves quickly. So they, they launched um, in early 2021. So the business is almost a year old, but you know, it's a hyperscaling journey, I would say. Definitely. Wow. Fascinating. Thanks so much for that. And Marcus, over to you. What keeps you busy? And give us a little bit of an anecdote from your scaling experiences. So what what keeps me busy, I suppose, is working with founders, really. I feel very privileged that I get to do something that doesn't feel like work because I get to meet and work with very closely amazing people on very interesting journeys. I've been through an awful lot. I've had the founder who I begged not to raise money for two years because he really didn't need it, but thought he needed the badge of having raised, who then called me to say that he'd raised nine figures and managed to call me at the moment where I was standing with my kids in Disney's Magic Kingdom, which seemed appropriate at the time. Norris and Moniz is an amazing one. I invested in that business when it was a Word document. And to see the growth that he's been on as a founder and a CEO through some incredibly dicey moments, you know, in those early days of getting rounds away when it seemed really unlikely that they were going to happen, the moments where things stopped scaling for a period of time, and to see his resilience and and learning how you relax into that role of being the CEO, being able to step back and get perspective. So so we've talked a lot about that over the years. And obviously you talk about the story of Moniz and just for those who may have not heard of the business, it's a fintech that at the time was the first one that allowed people without formal documentation, refugees, migrants to get bank accounts in the UK. And that mission was so unbelievably complex. So to have seen this tremendous financial and commercial success at times that have been tricky it's been fascinating so sounds absolutely wonderful and it's interesting you sort of mentioned the stories of resilience and I know Sasha you've also said in the past that resilience is something that you really uh, look for in founders many investors say that it's conviction but resilience is probably equally important so I love that we will be hearing today from some incredibly confident and resilient founders. And the first one is already with us. I am super happy that Shadi, the founder of Tune, is joining us for today's conversation. Shadi, first of all, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Marta. It's great to be here. Thank you for joining us. Tell us about Tune. And also tell us how you came to found it. What problem were you solving? Absolutely. So let's start with Tune. Tune is a personalized women's healthcare company reinventing the way healthcare assesses the complexity of female hormones with a focus on individuality. And we are on a mission to create a world where every woman is in tune with their body, starting with personalized birth control. And my story and how I created Tune 
And I remember very clearly that I always wanted to build a company, but I didn't know what that would be. And so fast forward, unfortunately, I ended up getting misdiagnosed with bowel cancer, almost underwent surgery. And no doctor knew basically what was going on. And at that point, I said, you know what, I'm going to go and acquire additional health degrees and investigate what was really happening with my own body. And I ended up discovering that I have a particular hormone imbalance that impacts the way that I metabolize food. And also I realized I'm not alone. Millions of women out there are suffering in silence experiencing hormonal issues, experiencing severe side effects. But just because of our system, the way that it was built, no one was talking about it. And, you know, this is lack of understanding of female hormones. This is, you know, lack of technology. This is a lot of stigma. And so for me, seeing that injustice really fired me up to say, I want to create a world where there is less suffering. And here we are with Tune. That's what we're trying to do. Amazing. I absolutely love your story. So um, today we're here to talk about fundraising. You've obviously successfully fundraised already from some incredible investors, including Passion Capital, Octopus, Ventures. But clearly there are more questions to be answered. So how can we help today? Yes, exactly. So just for a bit of context, obviously Tune is a European company, but because of our sort of route to market, our principal market is the US market. And we don't need to fundraise immediately. But the question I have in preparation for fundraising is, is there a difference between value add with US investors and European investors? And in my mind, there is a more of a philosophical underlying philosophical question to ask, which is how much value add is value add? What expectations should I have? I think a lot of entrepreneurs, including myself, believe the value add should go as far as introducing to partners, talents, etc. Is that the right way of thinking about it? And it would be great to get Sasha's and Marcus's thoughts on this. Love it. Sasha, I saw you nodding as Shadi was describing her story. What are your first thoughts? So, you know, starting with a broader philosophical one, especially at early stages of business building, it's important to build a relationship with partners and investors that you want to bring on board where you think that they are providing more than just capital. More often than not, it's good to have a sounding board. It's good to have someone who you can sort of bounce ideas with and who may have interesting points of view or be able to help not only strategically, but also tactically. In terms of the U.S. and Europe, it's also a really interesting question because I think there's always a benefit in having investors on board who understand the market that you're going after. But having said that, the other thing to be mindful of as well is what are the different kind of pieces of help that you need early on in the journey? So let's say if you consider that most of your team will be in Europe, for example, you're going to be in Europe for some time, that having a U.S. investor on board may not be as helpful with European company formation and European sort of company structure. I always think at early stages, a lot of it is about relationships. So unless you're planning to kind of move to the U.S. tomorrow, I often think of this as who do you want to be tied at the hip with for many, many years to come? But the question I would ask for yourself is less about where are they located, but how important will you be to them? Will they spend time? Will they allocate resources? 
will they basically be committed to you and less about, you know, where they are actually located, especially for early rounds in the business. So many amazing themes already coming from Sasha, what you, what you described, and it's interesting. Many founders might think that it's when you get the term sheet and money hits the account, that's the end of the fundraising process. But instead, it's actually the beginning of a relationship that hopefully is completely critical to the business. And we're seeing the role of investors moving away from just the providers of cash to actually being those helpful advisors, sometimes in crisis or in appropriate moments, sort of almost semi-operational, but definitely always there for the founder. Marcus, what are your thoughts? I mean, I always think at the start, it's about fit and understanding of purpose, particularly when you've got, you know, such a strong mission driving your company. For me, more than where somebody's based, exactly what they bring, it's it's their ability to play back to you why your purpose is important over and above it just being an investment. Let's say you had the choice and you had somebody's great sort of market fit in the US, but they didn't understand your mission. For me, that seems one of the most important things that you could nail at this stage, more so than exactly where somebody's based. And then I think it comes down to really what is it at this stage that you're going to be optimising for? Where do you feel the most help? Because what you've described is a bit more about you need that understanding of somebody who's got great experience of getting through the maze that is FDA regs and getting into all the insurance companies to somebody who's done that before. I'm sure you can find that partners who are from the US who've got a massive interest in healthcare, biotech, and have been through those cycles before. What do you need the most help with? Yeah. So, for example, we are currently in five states. We have the ability to scale to 50 states because we have the regulatory approvals. And then the, the question becomes, should we dominate the five? Should we move beyond the five? Is it one state at a time? Is it multiple states at a time? And really, my thinking is, this has been done before. And not tapping into that experience and knowledge, it means an additional mistake for me that it's not necessary for me to make. So that's one example for the sake of this conversation. There are a couple of ways to answer the question. You can work with someone who has indeed been through something like this before and they have the answer off the bat. But it's a 10-year journey. So today they have an answer to this. Tomorrow you'll have another question and they may not have an answer to this. It's a 10-year journey and it's worse than marriage because it's harder to walk away from your investor relationship. If you ask someone who doesn't know this, but are they going to do everything they can to find out for you? That probably is the person that you want to tie your destiny with for the next 10 years than the person who knows the answer right away. But then you're taking the risk that two years from now, they will absolutely not know the answer. And they haven't actually had to try very hard and show you that they're going to do whatever they can to find out the answer because it came to them easily. So again, I guess it goes back to Marcus's point. I would optimize for the fit, but also for just thinking like, is this person going to do whatever they can to help me rather than do they already have all the information right away. You want that person who's going to say, right, let's go, not, oh, really? When you phone them with a problem. I and mean, I think that's not always easy to spot that, but talking to other founders and that really helps. By the way, I love this question because in sort of in my journey, we have used geographical location of investors quite strategically. Although, frankly, I sort of look back and I'm wondering, it's sort of the chicken and egg, like to what extent did we follow opportunities and to what extent was it always 100% strategic? But for instance, at Asobo, 
eVentures invested in us, sort of late seed, and then led our Series A. We were based in the UK, a money transfer business, so needed to be regulated. We wanted to launch in Germany, and they, as a brilliant German fund, made it so much easier for us to launch in Germany. But I'm not sure if that's just because they were based in Germany, or if it's because they were a value-additive investor who was indeed bought into what we were trying to do and was willing to stretch their relationships. So I suppose what I'm hearing and the takeaway is it's not necessarily just where the investor is and and who they know, but to what extent are they planning to activate all of their relationships to be at the service of your business? No, this is very helpful. Thank you all. (laughs) Shadi, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Skill Ups and Downs. How can we find you online and how can we find more about you? You can find us online at tune.com, easy peasy. And on the About Us page, how it works, the, all the information is there. Also, the team is always on live chat. So any questions, you can ask them. But yeah, thank you again. This was great. I'm loving every minute of this. Thank you. This is, this is really good. I hope Shadi has been helpful. Moving on, we've got another excellent question from another brilliant founder. Tomide Arisanmi is the founder of CircuitMind. Tomide, how are you doing today? Hello, Marta. Great to see you. And it's interesting, the US team is somehow pressing today because um, from what I understand, you're calling us from SF. <laughs> yep, I'm in San Francisco. I'm fundraising on the road, meeting customers <laughs> and so on. Sounds good. Well, I hope it's going brilliantly and I hope your weather is a little bit better than ours here in London. But rather than about the weather, let's talk about CircuitMind. Tell us about what CircuitMind does and tell us your founder story, please. Yeah, so CircuitMind is building artificial intelligence software that fully automates the design of electronic circuit boards. Before CircuitMind, I was an electronic systems engineer who spent Five years developing high-integrity augmented reality display systems for jet fighter pilots. And when I was at BAE, I faced a huge problem. And that problem is that hardware is hard. My team and I actually spent four years and millions of dollars developing a new helmet-mounted display system. Four years. So, you know, I did what anyone who values financial stability and career progression would do. I quit. I got, got out of there. And so I left to solve this problem, and that was when CircuitMind was born. So CircuitMind's three years old. It's a deep tech company. It's solving the basically the holy grail of electronic systems design, answering the question, can electronics engineers basically describe what they want to build? Can they describe the mission computer in a spaceship or the ECU in an an electrical autonomous vehicle or some renewable energy converters? Click a button and get a design done automatically for them in 60 seconds instead of months that it takes them currently. We've raised a couple of million, $2.8 million today, and we'll be raising more very soon. Brilliant. And it sounds like, as you said, you're on the road, you're in California, you're fundraising. So clearly there is a question coming to me there. How can Sasha and Marcus help you today? Yeah. So um, as CircuitMind, we're in the hard tech space and we're cracking this deep, previously unsolved problem. And I wanted to know what you think about how we get a wider variety of investors excited about deep tech opportunities. I can go first since I'm not a deep tech investor. So you're probably asking, how do I get somebody like Sasha excited? (laughs) My general feeling is that as a founder, you are a storyteller every single day. Storytelling is an incredible skill because 
you obviously have to keep your team extremely motivated and excited. You have to story tell for your customers. You have to story tell to investors, to the media, to everybody. As investors, we start off in many ways from what is the opportunity and how big is it? That's always the first question. And the second one is like, what is the solution to this problem? I think very often founders start by describing their solution and not the problem, which leaves the investor as a confused and potentially actually if that information is symmetry, by the way, I think will exist for forever because the investor isn't there with you 100% of the time and they're not operating a business for you. There will always be the information asymmetry. But on the long-term vision and on the problem, there shouldn't be information asymmetry. And if what you're building is something that, as you said, hasn't been maybe done before or is in a space that not everyone is extremely familiar with, then making it easier for someone to understand the problem and the size of it before they start going into the actual solution, that would be very helpful because that allows them to automatically get excited about the problem you're solving rather than the actual sort of product that you've built. And I think that also means that In many ways, it's fair because it hopefully creates alignment early on, which is the most important thing, right? They hopefully will understand why you're doing what you're doing. Thank you. A bit about storytelling. I think that's really important. I mean, I think if your storytelling is powerful enough, you can get people excited even if they don't understand the business to a certain extent. If you lay out the future of where the market is going, if you can set out an interesting enough vision for where this could go, then you're almost creating your own market. I mean, for an idea to be really big, at least 50% of the people have got to tell you you're crazy to even start. So I wouldn't worry about kind of feeling like you're out there on your own. I know that that doesn't always make converting the, the meetings you have into investments necessarily the easiest if, if you're in something that, that other people are in and you're the next person in that market. But I think that having seen what you're up to, I think this idea, particularly that the future of, of industrial design and, and how that's going to go is, is all in software and particularly in automated software. I don't think that's a particularly controversial thing. I know that people may be just starting to get that as an idea, but I think you should have real confidence in doing that. I'm both a deep tech investor. I'm also a hardware investor. You know, One of my latest businesses is a neurofeedback device using HEG or FNIRS. And I know the problems of designing effective PCBs and, and making that operate. As you said, hardware is really hard. I'd made my first hardware investment in, in a guy who was 17, who you probably know, called Josh Bauman. And everybody said he was crazy. He was going out with his first thing, which is 3D printing. You know, he was the first person to talk to me about it. And I think looking at what somebody like Josh did when he was 17 years old, and telling that story, I, th I think you should have real confidence in what you're saying because that whole market is going to be huge. And I think what you want to do is to get past as quickly as possible the people who don't believe in that to the people who do believe in it. Because that's, to a certain extent, what you know that pitch deck is about. It's not about getting investment. It's getting into a conversation with the people who believe in what you're doing. I think you... you have confidence in telling your story, you're going to find the people who believe it. So I have a follow-up question to that. This is, this is so interesting because you say, tell your story, and I'm sure that these things have been heard. You know, describe how big the market is today, how big it could be, how big is it going to be in 2025? 
Another thing we know that investors are thinking about, what could go wrong? Do you have advice alongside telling the big story of how big the business is, what the opportunity is and how great the product is and how well it responds to the need that's been identified? Would you try and address some fears that the investors might have about what they don't understand to Marcus's point that hardware is hard? I mean, I think that it depends on the context, right? If this is your first meeting with with an investor, a lot of it is about explaining your vision and explaining how you're going to get there. When I see pitch decks and the last page of the pitch deck is, this is my exit strategy. We're, we haven't even started or we've started and yet here is already how I'm, I'm going to sell the company and who is going to buy it 10 years from now. This is an investor's job to think about, you know, what kind of their investment criteria looks like or how they think about the sort of the strategic values that maybe gets created. And it's the same with the, you know, should you mention all of the things that can go wrong with your business? Let them ask you and then you, you'll have amazing answers for that. But I wouldn't volunteer that information in the first conversation. Yeah, I, I think from my side, I would agree with that. I would say what it is good to do is to have a good list of the assumptions in your model. Then you have to share those, but it definitely gives confidence if you can say what they are when asked. Going away and, and, and scrambling for those or, or having to go back with them a bit too much later is one of those things that I don't think helps confidence. But to Sasha's point, you don't have to put those all out on the table at the start. Thank you guys for your feedback. I do agree with the idea that the investors that really know what you're doing and are excited about what you're doing, you should tailor the message to those guys. I do hope that in the future, there'll be more of those kind of people looking in the deep tech space, as many as there are in, like, say, the fintech space or D2C products and so on. And then storytelling is something that I try to work on every day, Sasha. And, you know, I can definitely get better. So thanks a lot for the advice. Dimitri, thank you so much for joining us during your very intense period of meetings. How can we find more about Circuit Mind and how can we find you online? Yeah, thanks to everyone for being here and uh, um, spending your time advising us. You can find um, more about CircuitMind www.circuitmind.io and you can add me on Twitter or on LinkedIn. My LinkedIn is Tomide Adesanmi, A-D-E-S-A-N-M-I, Twitter at Tom Adesanmi, at T-O-M-A-D-E-S-A-N-M-I. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for joining us. And before I let you go, I mean, Sasha and Marcus, you are such a wonderful source of wisdom and it really makes a huge difference. And I love that what we're trying to do here is we're, we're trying to show that sometimes what, what great leaders do is actually ask the right questions rather than necessarily have all the answers. And it's brilliant to, to have you to contribute to these conversations. As we're talking about source of wisdom, I'm wondering what is the best piece of advice you ever got, Sasha? I got so much advice over the years. Some of it solicited, some of it not. The latest one that I got from someone recently, which I quite liked, is worry about the things you can control. Don't worry about the things that you cannot control. That was a really good one. But I'm waiting for the next one. So if someone has better advice, please send my way. All right. Brilliant. Oh, actually, then, Sasha, how do we find you so that we can give you our unsolicited advice? <laughs> Very easy. LinkedIn is perfect or emailing me or 
stopping by. I'm very easily findable, but I definitely check my LinkedIn all the time. Brilliant. And Marcus, any piece of advice you received that you'd be willing to share? Most of my great advice comes from my mum, frankly. I think probably the best piece of advice was always kindness isn't weakness. Love it. Kindness isn't weakness. Actually, speaking of kindness and helpfulness, before we let you go, Marcus, you've just launched something very exciting that's supposed to help founders with a lot of their burning questions called Up and to the Right. Do you want to tell us more and where we can find it? Yeah, I think really this is us trying to productize our help. I suppose we've spent years, you know, advising founders, but it's based on the amount of time we've got, which quite often we we don't have enough. So we've launched a a new platform called Up and to the Right, which is uh, U, the number two, U2R.co. And we're trying to democratize access to good, deep information for early stage founders so that everybody gets an opportunity to get access to good advice and help. So that's the mission that we're on. As I say, it's a privilege that that's what we get to do every day, to go on journeys with amazing people. So yeah, we're just trying to uh, help more people. I suppose that's the mission. That's awesome. And it's a mission that's very well aligned with our mission here at Google for Startups. So speaking of our mission, you know, this podcast is an effort to allow more founders to join these amazing conversations that we get to have with experts, with investors, with fellow founders. This podcast is born out of our years of putting founders together and and having these wonderful, rich, often universal conversations. So if you're enjoying the podcast, if you'd like to join the podcast because you yourself are a founder at any stage of your development and you have a burning question that you'd like to put forward to our community, we would love to have you do that. So if you go to scaleupsanddowns.com, you can submit your burning scale-up question and we would love to consider having you on the show. But in the meantime, thank you so much at Sasha, Marcus, Shardy and Samide. You have been absolutely wonderful. This has been Scale Ups and Downs, and I hope to hear you and see you uh, all again soon.